Morning, everybody. Great to see you. And big shout out to all the moms and future moms and, and grandmas and just all the ladies here. Thanks so much for making River Glen part of your uh, Mother's Day weekend. I came across this website, and that's uh, called salary.com. And they did this uh, uh, survey, and uh, they wanted to try to figure out, you know, what would a mom make, okay, if she were paid for her responsibilities and all the work that she does as a uh, mom. And they considered all kinds of factors. They... Uh, Surveyed 15,000 uh, moms, and you might argue with this number, but uh, they figured out that, uh, that, that mom would make an annual salary of $122,000. Yeah, just for being a mom. And two-thirds of that is overtime. Yeah, and so uh, way to go, uh, uh, moms. Uh, great job. And uh, make sure you don't forget to uh, honor the moms in your world uh, this uh, weekend. Now, you know, moms have a lot of responsibility, a lot of work to do, and many times they walk around feeling kind of exhausted, feeling overwhelmed. But I don't think it's just moms. I think it's, I think many of us, you know, walk around uh, feeling that way. I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's, there's, a, there's a new standard answer for the question, how are you, you know? Years ago, you know, you'd, you'd ask somebody, how are you? And the uh, automatic uh, response was, you know, good, you know, I'm fine. How are you? But now we've got a totally different, you know, automatic answer. Uh, now when someone says, you know, how are you? What, what's the new answer? Busy. Yeah, I'm busy. I'm just really uh, busy. Busy is the new standard answer. And I catch myself saying that. You probably have said that too. And we tend to say it in a stressed out, you know, overwhelmed kind of way. Yeah, I'm just crazy busy. You know, busy, busy, busy. I just feel overwhelmed and exhausted. I don't know how I'm going to get everything done. I'll tell you, as a pastor, I hear this quite a bit. And many times I hear this in the context of money. I feel overwhelmed with debt. I feel overwhelmed with bills. You know, I don't know how we're going to keep our heads above water, let alone set aside some money for our child's education. There's mouths to feed. There's a car that needs repair, a loan that needs paying off, and school fees that are due, I feel overwhelmed. And that's what we're going to talk about uh, today. We're beginning this new series. It's called Mine. And you might think that this is going to be about, you know, saving and spending and, and uh, you know, and giving. But that's not what today is going to be about. Today is about something that happens before we, we, we uh, spend or give or save. Today is about something that God does in us, you know, before we decide what happens with the money. Today is about our relationship with money. Let me ask you a, a few questions, okay? Let me ask you, have you ever been wounded by money? Have you ever experienced a broken relationship because of a misunderstanding about money? Have you ever had a divorce, you know, because the two of you thought differently about money? Have you ever had a dissolved family uh, relationship because of uh, something to do with, with money? Have you ever felt less than in this world because of, of money? You know, for some of us, this topic, I mean, it goes really deep. The hurt really runs deep, so deep that no one may know how deeply you've been hurt except you. This topic at times, it can ruin us. It can destroy us, it can separate us from other people, and it can separate us from God. And so today, I believe God wants to speak to us from his word to bring healing to these wounds and to bring understanding to this relationship. Because can we not all say that at times this subject has hurt and wounded all of us? And so today, I want to begin uh, by talking about a very interesting character in the Bible who, in my opinion, 
was deeply wounded by money. Not just by how, you know, he managed it, but by how he, uh, he hoarded it and acquired it and abused it. This guy's relationship with money was so terrible that he thinks his only hope is a higher power at work in his life. You know, uh, kind of like millions of Americans who participate in 12-step groups because they've got a problematic behavior. And they think that the only way they can change is by tapping into a higher power. Many years ago, I took this class on group communication at a university, and I did a a study of uh, 12-step groups, and I actually attended one, you know, with a a friend of mine from church. And I can still remember, you know, walking into this church building and going down into the basement. There was a circle of of folded chairs, and uh, I I remember sitting down and and feeling, you know, really nervous and self-conscious. You know, I was a pastor at a church. You know, what if somebody from the church sees me here? What are they going to think? And then they started going around the circle and introducing themselves. And each person said something like, you know, hi, my name is Bob. You know, I'm an alcoholic. And everybody said, you know, welcome, Bob. Hi, Bob. And it's coming around to my turn. And I'm thinking, what in the world am I going to say? And fortunately, my friend leaned over to me, whispered in my ear, and I repeated exactly what he said. I said, hi, my name is Ben, and I'm a guest. And everybody said, hi, Ben, and I felt welcome and relaxed. And then afterward, I I sat down with a few members of the group, and I will never forget their honesty and surrender to Jesus as their higher power because they know that Jesus is their only hope for staying sober and living free. Alcoholics begin the process of recovery uh, by saying that, that we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And we came to believe that a higher power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. You know what, sometimes when I sit down with people and they're just con- continually overwhelmed financially, I think to myself, they need a higher power at work, at work in their life to restore them to sanity. So let's take a look at this interesting guy in the Bible who uh, we read about in Luke chapter 19. It says, Jesus entered uh, Jericho and was uh, passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. Well, because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead And he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And so he came down at once and uh, welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today... Salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and save uh, the lost. Now many of you probably heard that story before about Zacchaeus in the city of Jericho. Several months ago a group of us went over to Israel and we actually went through Jericho and we went through downtown Jericho and we saw this big tree with some merchants around it and they claimed this is the tree right here you know, that Zacchaeus climbed which... I'm not sure I buy that because that would be a really old uh, tree, but I thought I would show it to you anyway because this is Jericho, and the tree Zacchaeus climbed probably looked very similar uh, to that one. Now, I've heard this story many, many times, but my opinion has changed about something. I always thought Zacchaeus climbed that tree because he was short and he wanted to see a Jesus, but I believe there's a whole lot more going on here. I mean, what would cause a wealthy, remember it said he was a chief tax collector. What would cause him to hike up his tunic and sacrifice his dignity and climb a tree like that 
in broad daylight. I think Zacchaeus climbed that tree to see Jesus because he was deeply wounded by money. His conscience tortured him and he wanted help. Zacchaeus had caused a lot of pain in the lives of other people because he was a dishonest tax collector. He overcharged them and he pocketed the extra and he'd become very wealthy. But instead of enjoying his his, his wealth and sharing it with others, he hoarded it and he felt empty and dissatisfied. And I think he reached a point where like an alcoholic, he realizes I'm powerless to change this behavior. And he knew he needed a greater power outside of his strength because he had such a terrible relationship with money. He despised the way that he acquired it and hoarded it. I think he began to despise himself. His relationship with money is just killing him on the inside. And so he hears about this miracle worker coming through town who maybe has supernatural power, and he decides to go check it out for himself. And and you know what happens. You know, Jesus sees Zacchaeus up in the tree, and Jesus invites himself over for dinner, just a harmless little dinner. You know, that's all it's going to be. And so Zacchaeus takes Jesus over to his his house. I, I do wonder what kind of house Zacchaeus had. Remember, he's very wealthy. He's the chief tax collector. Maybe he had the biggest house in Jericho. 10,000 square feet. Maybe he had some really cool artwork and furniture that he purchased with extorted money from other Jews. Maybe there were beggars, you know, or people starving at the front gate of his house. And he's got to lead Jesus, you know, through these beggars who never received anything from Zacchaeus because he didn't really care about the poor. Maybe that was awkward. Maybe this whole thing was awkward, but then something happened over the course of dinner. Scripture doesn't really give us any details about how the conversation unfolded, but this dinner with Jesus rocked his world. It turned Zacchaeus' life upside down, so much so that Jesus comes out of this dinner, comes out of the house, and he says to the watching crowd that salvation has come to this house. Someone who was lost has been found. Someone who was guilty has been cleansed. Somebody who felt powerless about a problem has found a higher power. Someone far from God has been reconciled. Amazing things happened over that dinner with Jesus. But it doesn't end there. And this is what I really want you to get today. Zacchaeus is one of the only people I know of in scripture and in all of history who experienced not one reconciliation upon meeting Jesus. He experienced two reconciliations during that dinner. The first was a spiritual reconciliation. Salvation comes to that house. Zacchaeus is forgiven of his moral sin and he comes into relationship with God and it's a, just a totally cool moment. He's spiritually reconciled to God through Jesus. But at that same dinner, there's a second reconciliation. There's a financial reconciliation with God. There's a total repentance for financial sin. He confesses to Jesus that he has a terrible relationship with money. And then there's evidence of complete heart change because Zacchaeus comes out of that dinner and he announces to Jesus and everybody, I'm gonna give half of my stuff away. I'm giving 50% of my possessions away uh, to the poor because I should have been given a, a, a percentage all along. And then Zacchaeus repairs the damage that he's done by cheating people and cutting corners and all of that. And he says, I'm going to check my accounts and if I've cheated anybody, I'm going to pay them back four times what I owe them. I'm reconciling myself financially to God. I'm going to go a new direction. I'm going to go God's direction. 
from this day forward. And that was a huge turning point for Zacchaeus in his relationship with God and in his relationship with money. And you know what? It reminded me of a turning point in my life, in my relationship with money. Now, you know, this was not anywhere near as huge or dramatic as what Zacchaeus experienced that day, but it was a real turning point for me in my relationship with money. I remember that it was about this time of the year, as many years ago. I know, I, know, I know it was the month of May because it was the month I graduated from college. It was just a few days before I graduated, and it was a very fun time in my life, very exciting time, you know, getting ready to leave college. I was newly engaged. I had a job lined up in Kentucky, and I'm saying goodbye to my friends and teachers, and just an exciting time in my life, packing up my stuff, getting ready to, to move on. But I had a financial sin weighing on my conscience. You know, even though I was, even though I had reconciled with God, you know, as a child and, and gotten baptized and I'm getting ready to graduate from college and, and, and begin work as, as, a, as a pastor, I had a poor relationship with money. I had a dysfunctional relationship with money and, and now my conscience bothered me. Here, here's what happened. A couple of years, for a couple of years while I was in college, I worked for the school. I would uh, go to uh, churches and camps on the weekends and during the summer, and the college was very generous. They would cover my travel expenses and, and my meals. But back then, college students didn't have ATM cards or credit cards or cell phones, and so the school gave me this envelope with $50 cash, which back then was a lot of money, $50 cash for emergencies, you know, some emergency money. And I kept that envelope in my glove compartment and I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I started dipping into that $50 for non-emergencies, like, you know, the McDonald's drive through and the Wendy's drive through and pretty soon all the money was gone in the envelope. And the school never asked me about it. And so I got away with it. But my conscience remembered. And so right before graduation, I went to the bank. I withdrew $50 cash. I swallowed my pride and I went into the office of my supervisor and admitted to him that I had spent the uh, emergency money and I put $50 cash on his, on his desk. Now, I thought he might say, you know, Ben, don't worry about the money. Keep your money. But he took it. And I'm, you know what? I'm glad he did. Because that experience helped me realize that I had a poor relationship with money. I had a dysfunctional relationship with, with, with money. And I realized I needed help. I needed to reconcile myself to God, not just spiritually. I needed to reconcile with him financially. And I'm not the only one. I agree with something that Pastor Bill Hybel says. You know, take a look at this. He says, for far more Christ followers have had spiritual reconciliations with Jesus than financial reconciliations with him. It's true, isn't it? And that's why so many sincere Christians have a dysfunctional relationship with money. When they got saved, you know, they got saved from their sin, which is, which is very important, which is a very big deal. But if the second reconciliation didn't happen along with the first, if a financial reconciliation with God didn't happen along with the spiritual reconciliation, then the power of God did not break the power of money in your life, and in my opinion, you're one reconciliation away from being fully reconciled with God, because I think you've got to be spiritually and financially reconciled with God to live free of guilt and shame. And I wonder if there are some of you here right now while I'm talking about this, and you're wondering, what would it be like to 
not just be spiritually reconciled with God, but to also be financially reconciled as well. What would it be like if God's power were released in your life so that you could make money behave you know, the way it should instead of, you know, making, instead of it making you do all kinds of crazy things that leaves you tied up in knots and worried and just continually feeling overwhelmed? Maybe some of you are wondering, how would a financial reconciliation with God, how, how would that happen? You know, you got me interested. How would that happen? Well, that's a good question. And I would say it happens pretty much the same way that a spiritual reconciliation happens with God. One time a military guy asked the Apostle Paul, you know, how can I get reconciled spiritually with God? And Paul answered him and boiled it down into one sentence. Here it is. It's from Acts 16. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Notice this key word here, believe. In other words, believe that Jesus was God's son. Believe that, that his death on the cross was, was a substitutionary atoning sacrifice, meaning that, that he took your sins upon himself. Believe that God has made your eternity secure. Paul says to the military guy, if you believe in the Lord Jesus, in the fullest sense of that word, you will be reconciled to God and saved. And the military guy says, I do believe. And just a few hours later, along with the other members of his family who also believed, they were all baptized and saved. It's a really cool story. Total spiritual reconciliation. But back to that question. How do you get financially reconciled to God? Well, you also have to believe some things. What are the things that you, that you believe? That's what we're going to talk about in this series. There are three beliefs. And uh, each weekend we're going to teach one of them to you. Three beliefs that will lead you to financial reconciliation and healing and peace with God. And uh, here's the first belief statement. You believe all I have has come my way by the loving hand of God. Would you say that out loud with me? Ready? On the count of three. One, two, three. All I have has come my way by the loving hand of God. In fact, there's a verse in James chapter 1. Uh, Verse 17 that illustrates this really well. James says, whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father. In other words, God gave you life. God gave you talents and aptitudes. God gave you your learning capabilities and opportunities. God, God has, has opened educational and vocational doors for you throughout the course of, of your life. Ultimately, I think you would agree that any humble person, you know, with sound judgment would have to say that all I have has come my way by the loving hand of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? Well, we really want to, don't we? But I'll confess to you, there are many times when I think to myself, that was my gift that got that job done. That was my abilities that earned that income. I'm the one that's frugal. I'm the one that's generous. You know, I'm the, I'm the one that, that, that earned it. And, and that really means it's mine. Mine, mine, mine. All mine. And here in this spot lies the very thing that tears us apart from God and gets us in trouble financially. So often this spot keeps us from recognizing this, this amazing truth that all I have has come my way by the loving hand of God. This piece of us that, that often thinks that since we really earned our money, since we really earned a good life, then we're the ones that should decide what happens with it. But when we think about the source of, of many of our financial hurts, when we think about the source of many of our financial wounds, it's usually found in this spot 
in this type of thinking, since we're the ones that earn the money, then we decide what happens with it. But look at, look at what Jesus says about how this type of thinking can wound us. He says, no one can serve two masters, for you'll hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise uh, the other. And look at this. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. And here, here's what that means. That if we don't reconcile financially with God, we end up enslaved and overwhelmed and wounded by money. I mean, how often have we had an argument, you know, with a spouse or a family member or a friend or a coworker or a boss because we, have a, we, we had a wrongful understanding of who owns uh, the money and where it, the money came from. But when we realize that all we have has come to us by the loving hand of God, it eliminates where these misunderstandings and hurts begin and it begins to unify our relationship. Because it's not, did you earn this or did I earn this? Or I'm the breadwinner and you're not. It becomes all that we have has come our way by the loving hand of God. And then in the next verse, Jesus explains how this belief can transform our worry about money. Jesus says, that's why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your, and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns for your heavenly father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life and and why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares to one, cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's, today's trouble is enough for today. Now, it would be unrealistic, you know, for me to think or for me to say that if you reconcile, you know, yourself financially with God, you're never going to worry about money. Or you're never going to argue about money ever uh, again. Or that right now you're not going through something incredibly you know, difficult where you would say, I just don't think Ben understands the seriousness of what we're going through right now. You know, I'm not saying, you know, you're never going to worry or stress about money. I'm saying, here's, here's what I think this is saying, is that when worry creeps up, you know, when tensions begin to happen between you and another person, between you and God, between you and, and a family member, between you and, and a boss, we can stop and turn to God. We can stop and turn to the source and we can say all we have has come our way by the loving hand of God. And we don't have to worry because God will provide for us. I have seen more reconciliations and more unity in marriages and families and in friendships on this subject than any other. I know this can be a divisive subject, but when we get on the same page when it comes to money, when we get on the same page about reconciling financially with God, there are few things in this life that can bring us closer together. Why? Because there are few things in life that bring us closer to God. When we get financially reconciled, you grow closer to God than you ever were before, and that brings us closer to one another. And if we really believe that all I have has come my way by the loving hand of God, it 
elevates our level of joy and gratitude in life because it's going to help us to see that not only is life a gift, but every single part of life is also a gift. And it'll lead us to be thankful, more thankful for what God has already given us. And that's going to heal many of our financial wounds. And it's going to reconcile us even more deeply to God and to the people around us. I came across a a post on a blog that I think really summarizes this point. Uh, it's called, this blog is called uh, Momastery. It's written for moms, targeting moms. Somebody uh, told me about it, directed me to it. And uh, it's written by a woman who maybe you've heard of her. Her name is uh, Glennon Doyle Melton. And she's written many books. I think we gave away some of her books to uh, ladies, to moms this, this weekend. Well, recently she posted, she, she wrote a post on her blog and she shared a picture of herself in her kitchen. And then people responded, but what surprised her was how they didn't really respond to her post. More people responded to the picture of her kitchen and how it, they said it looked messy and her outdated countertops and appliances and cabinets and people gave her all kinds of suggestions for how she could make it look so much better if she would just put more time and effort and money into it. And she started thinking, you know, maybe it is all wrong. Maybe the outdated style and clutter, you know, needs fixing. She went to bed, she got up the next morning and she walked into her kitchen with a fresh perspective and new eyes. And here's what she wrote, here's what she posted. You guys, I have a refrigerator. This thing magically makes food cold. I'm pretty sure in the olden days, Frontiers women had to drink warm Diet Coke. Thank you, precious refrigerator. And this crazy thing is a water faucet. I pull this lever and clean water pours out every time, day or night. I'm almost embarrassed to say we have one of these in each of our bathrooms. And one, we have one in the front yard with which we wash our feet. We use clean drinking water to wash our feet. Holy bounty. And this is the magical box in which I put on cook stuff, push some buttons, and then a minute later, pull out cook stuff. It's just like the Jetsons up in there. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Things that we take for granted because they've become such a familiar part of our life and our culture. We forget to be thankful for what God has already provided for us. So here's a little challenge for you, if you're willing to do it, okay? This week, let's, par- let's practice saying thank you to God for every uh, moment. You know, when you, when, you, when you get out of bed, when you roll out of bed in the, in the morning, uh, thank you, God, for a bed to sleep in. When you hop in the shower, thank you, God, for hot water. When you drink your coffee, thank you, God, for the farmers, you know, who grew the coffee beans. When you put your clothes on, when you, when you start your car, when you go to the workplace, thank you, God, for the hands that made these clothes. Thank you, God, for a car that starts. Thank you, God, for a place where I can go and earn a living. Thank you, God, for everything. You are the giver of all good things. Thank you, God, for life, for breath, for the sunshine, for the rain, and thank you, God, for the food that we eat. You know, many of us probably set aside time to, you know, pray for, pray for the meals. Thank God for the meals. But I love the way G.K. Chesterton writes about being thankful before meals. Look at what he says here. You say grace before meals? All right, but I say grace before the concert and the opera. And I say grace before the play and pantomime. And grace before I open a book. And grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, walking, boxing, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. Isn't that good? 
May we learn to say grace in every moment because all that we have has come our way by the loving hand of God. That's why each weekend in our services we pause to remember the greatest gift God ever uh, gave by sharing communion together. And if communion's new for you and you want to take a pass on it, that's fine. But I want you to know that our communion is open to anybody who believes in Jesus as God's son. This week I thought about some of the different terms that people and churches use for communion. You know, we refer to it as communion. Sometimes we refer to it as the Lord's Supper. And then some churches call it the Eucharist. You know, maybe you've heard that term before. You know what Eucharist means? It simply means thank you, which is is very appropriate, isn't it? it? The idea is that as we eat the bread that represents the body of Jesus and we drink the juice that represents the blood of Jesus, we express our gratitude and we say thank you for his sacrifice on the cross that makes it possible for every one of us to be fully reconciled to God now and forever. So let me go ahead and pray for us. God, from the beginning, uh, you've been the source of all good things, from the flowers of the field to the birds in the air. You created them all. And you created us in your image. You are our source. You're the giver of all good things. And God, may we embrace this belief today. May this belief set us free. May we stop worrying. May we not be so overwhelmed. May we trust you as our provider And God, thank you most of all for your son, Jesus, who came to set us free, fully free. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.